Today on The Thread, we have Maya Shenwar, author of Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. And we have part two of our interview with Kinetic Justice, talking to us from his cell in solitary confinement for the leadership role he's played in Alabama prison organizing. Prison started as a reform. Yeah, yeah. And when we think of reform in that context as like something that is well-meaning, but can ultimately end up expanding the system, I think when when we think of it that way, we kind of get a better grasp on what we're up against. Uh, this is not a, really a truth about crime and punishment. And of course, this is not about treatment justice, for real. Uh, this is an economic system, and it is about the money. At the end of the day, it's about the bottom line on the balance sheet. This is The Thread, a podcast against mass incarceration. The mission is to create a national organ that weaves together the most politically advanced organizers in the movement against mass incarceration, through which we can explore and unite our strategies, tactics, and histories. Check out podcasts, study guides, materials for suggestions on how to organize around this podcast and more at defeatmassincarceration.com. I'm Matt Pillisher, the producer and editor, and as part of this project, we have a great advisory board that you can also see on our website uh, with lots of activists and organizers across the country. Our amazing interns are Jordan McIntyre and Zach Sterali, both of whom you'll hear later in the show. The theme music is from friends at the awesome Die Jim Crow project. Check it out at diejimcrow.com. And we welcome study groups that are listening to this, and we look forward to your feedback. Today, we'll explore with Maya Shenoir the hidden dangers that prison reform can bring if you don't have a long-term vision for change, and if you don't include people directly impacted as drivers for that change. And we'll continue our conversation with Kinetic Justice about organizing behind the wall, the recent Alabama prison strike that he helped organize, and how he found politics inside prison. Maya Shenoir is the editor-in-chief of Truth Out at truth-out.org. She is the author of Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work, and How We Can Do Better and the editor of the new book from Truth Out and Haymarket Books, Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? Police Violence and Resistance in the United States. Zach and I talked to Maya via Skype. I guess I wanted to to start by digging into um, the whole idea of reform versus revolution or total Mm -hmm. transformation of the system. 
mm-hmm. um, and I what what really um, piqued my interest was the article you did I guess in April um, that was talking about this very issue and looking at it through the lens of Alabama's recent proposed reforms and sort of the history of reforms in Alabama state prisons um, which I, I you would probably agree are often well-meaning um, sometimes mm-hmm. they're insidious but a lot of well-meaning people um, want to provide reforms without either thinking long term how they'll um, how they'll actually roll out and have an impact on the people that it's meant to help or even including those people um, as part of you know agency in the process and ideas for change um, yeah. so um, maybe can you just talk a little bit about that in general and maybe um, some examples um, and and then I can you know ask some follow-up questions in terms of uh, the, that uh, the Alabama examples yeah absolutely the proposals that are coming up and this is on the federal level on the state level on the local level meaning jails a lot of the proposals that are coming up are for these kind of fine-tuning fixes you know people talk about fixing the criminal justice system, you know, or getting smart on crime instead of tough on crime. Right. And this is very appealing when you're you're a politician, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a strange logic when you think about, you know, compare it to other abominable institutions that have existed throughout history, right? That like, okay, we have this putrid institution that was founded on white supremacy that was founded on slavery. Mm -hmm. But the reform rhetoric talks about, you know, okay, well, the system itself needs to be here. We need to have a prison system. And so we need to fix all the things that are wrong with it, as if you can have that system without those features, you know, Mm -hmm. without racism, without classism, without homophobia and transphobia and sexism and all those things. And also, you know, it, it it presumes that you can have a criminal punishment system or what people call a criminal justice system without injustice. One of my favorite examples of reform efforts that actually expanded the system is in Illinois, there's a program called the Moms and Babies Program. And what it is is it's for women who give birth in minimum security prison mm-hmm. and it allows them to remain with their babies after they give birth by actually incarcerating the babies as well you know right. like keeping the babies with them in prison so they have you know special cells so that they can have their babies with them and there's like additional features, additional programming uh, to help them with parenting. So this program was partially funded through a federal grant and it's definitely been kind of showcased all over the place as an example of a way to address a very serious and heartbreaking problem within the prison system. Right. Of course, you look at what that's actually doing, right? It's expanding the system, it's increasing funding, it's actually putting more people in prison because babies are in prison as well at that Mm -hmm. point. 
So the assumption is, okay, these people have been sentenced to be in prison. So even after they give birth, they must be in prison. Like that goes unquestioned. Whereas you kind of take one step back from that logic and you say, okay, what is the purpose of them continuing to be in prison? And if you continue to follow that question, you start to ask, well, is anything that, they're, that they've done in the past indicative that they would actually harm society or that this would harm society more than continuing this, this situation in which they're separated from their community and from the rest of their family with their baby in prison. And of course, a prison is not an ideal place to raise a baby. So it you know, brings up questions of whether this is actually having a positive effect on the child other than being with the mother in prison. Yeah. And so one of the things that I've tried to do around this reform is really challenge that assumption that these people who are qualifying for this program need to be in prison at all. My sister raised a really good point on this subject. So my sister was in and out of prison and jail right. for about a decade. And yeah, she gave and, birth behind bars, right? Right. Yeah. She had a baby while she was incarcerated in Illinois. And she did not qualify for this Moms and Babies program. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that in order to qualify for this program, you basically have to have such a spotless and a practically completely clean record mm -hmm. that it's questionable why you're, you're in prison at all. In the first yeah. place. Uh -huh. Like my sister talked about it as you know, it's it's usually first-time nonviolent offenders uh -huh. who have a spotless record inside of prison. They're serving short sentences. And so my sister didn't make the cut because she had had previous offenses. And so, so she was asking, you know, what would it take for the reform to be just not incarcerating them? You know, how much less expensive would that be? And ultimately, what would that do in terms of actually having a positive function for society? for people to be able to raise their children on the outside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that doesn't mean you don't support them at all. It doesn't mean you just open the gates and say, okay, here you go, like, have your baby. You know, actually, I would argue that some of the money that is being spent for this reform program to kind of create this, like, wildly artificial environment that allows for babies to live inside of prison, spend some of that money on things like prenatal care and early childhood education and health care and all of these things, child care, all of these things that would actually support a mother in caring for her baby on the outside and supporting a better life for both of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what what came to mind when you're talking is that it's it's a problem that actually people think that this is a humane solution that babies exactly. when prisons were introduced, you know, the modern prison is a little over 200 years old. And when it was introduced, it was introduced as a reform. Mm -hmm. 
it was previously, you know, the main forms of punishment were corporal punishment and capital punishment. Mm -hmm. There were like 28 crimes that were punishable by death in the uh, 18th century in the United States. There was this sense, there was this climate, particularly among progressive people, there was this sense that there needed to be a mode of discipline and a mode of punishment that actually let people live. So prison was actually seen as a route to redemption and a route to rehabilitation. This was seen as something that allowed people to go in, you know, spend time by themselves with God. So we're, we're um, here in Philly. So the Quakers, oh, yeah. and just Monday night, I was in Eastern State Penitentiary and um, sort of reminded, you know, every time you go there, um, the idea of that, you know, penitence and, you know, what, yeah. what a what an advance, you know, they they hoped it would be. And, um, you know, just seeing that people were like going nuts in solitary confinement um, yeah, back then. Yeah. Prison started as a reform. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when we think of reform in that context as like something that is well-meaning, but can ultimately end up expanding the system, I think when when we think of it that way, we kind of get a better grasp on what we're up against. I do a lot of work with the Quakers, so um, I know they they do really good work. But it's just yeah, it's one of these examples. And I guess just as a follow up question, obviously there there have to be some reforms that the left fights for because there's got to be uh, stepping stones from what we have now to abolition, for example, if you and I agree on that. Um, yeah. And that, you know, the idea of moms being with their newborn babies, we would both agree is really important. Um, but we also know that there's not going to be this instant shift of letting out new mothers. Um, so I guess to sort of push on that a little bit, how do you think, do you think that involving people who are impacted themselves would have um, some help in deciding what reforms make sense and would be, you know, more livable with in the short term as we work towards more total transformation? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that that's why any activism that's happening around prison needs to involve people who are incarcerated and people who've formerly been incarcerated. I really like how you talk about um, prison and the criminal justice system as isolation and confinement because, mm -hmm. um, and I guess I would add like marginalization because mm -hmm. what you were just saying is like you don't want to transform incarceration like it's not enough to decarcerate if, if all those people are then on house arrest as you've said right. before because it's still isolation confinement and marginalization and right. in some cases it's actually worse because people can't take care of themselves if yeah. they're locked in their homes um, exactly. 
Yeah. So, so I, I think thinking of it in those terms, as you've described it, as isolation and confinement um, and making sure any reform that we're advocating for doesn't just transform the way we're isolating and confining and marginalizing people um, makes a lot of sense. Um, and I mean, some of the examples that I had brought up was was the ankle bracelets, was was the, the yeah. house arrest. Um, a lot of people are advocating for life without parole as a re- replacement Ugh. for the death penalty, um, right. which is just death by incarceration. Um, yes. So, like, all these things um, are not really thinking about the underlying, I guess, real purpose of the system. Do you want to ask some questions? Uh, yeah. I was thinking about it earlier, and you said it. It's like you have to kind of, like, break through this whole divide that even the people with good intentions who have like the power in politics yeah. to do things about it like their good intentions like only go so far you know what I mean like yeah. it mm-hmm. like stops with people are still incarcerated and we still have to give these people like the terms they don't like think outside the box ever and when exactly. they do think outside the box sometimes it's not great things <laughs> right. which is uh because one of my questions was from reading your articles you were talking about the predictive policing which is like thinking outside the box like let's you know create these open air prisons as you said outside of prisons right which is like especially around here like in camden new jersey which is like probably like the most surveilled city in the united states yeah like 80 percent of the city is under watch by the police department at all time and you were saying about uh body cameras too and that was something i hadn't read because you know body cameras seem like great things but then, like, you're always being watched by the police, and we're living in, like, a police state. So nice. I was wondering if you had any suggestions for reforming policing, in a way, in American communities, whether it's focused on effectiveness, which people are always so focused on, especially after, like, broken windows policing, or, like, right. harmony in the community, which seems like a more goal you want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, like... One of the things we need to be conscious of, I feel this so strongly in the realm of policing right now, because even more than prison reform, police reform has been kind of like at the forefront of a lot of national conversations, Mm -hmm. particularly over the past almost two years now because of Black Lives Matter. And I think that it's immensely valuable that that debate is happening. And I feel like this movement has just really brought some issues into public consciousness that have always been around, but we're just not talked about in mainstream circles regarding the fact that policing is grounded in white supremacy, that policing, the way it happens in the United States is fundamentally an anti-black practice. You know, but of course, a lot of the reforms that are being proposed are just kind of remaking the system in its own image. And I think the body cameras are a really good example. When I first heard about that proposal, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Filming (laughs) is good, right? It's always good to film. And then I started talking to more activists about it, talking to people within the movement, and it was like, oh, right, which which direction are those cameras facing? You know, if those cameras are on, they're filming us. And so I think we have to ask ourselves a few questions whenever we're thinking about police reform 
And these, for me, are, are drawn from one of the activists I admire most on these issues, Miriam Kaba, who was until recently here in Chicago. She's an activist and abolitionist. And she says that there are a few questions that you should ask yourself whenever a police reform is proposed. Now, one of those questions is basically, is this reform advocating for more police? You know, when you get down to it, when you get beyond all the fancy language about community policing and like, you know, people conscious policing and like working with the community, is this reform actually adding more police? Uh, another question is, is this reform actually giving more money to police departments? Mm -hmm. Now, and that's a challenging thing, right? It's the same thing as we were talking about earlier with prison reform, mm -hmm. that like sometimes you think, oh, well, we need policing to be better, and therefore it needs more funding. Mm -hmm. But any time you are appropriating more money for the police, you're building it up, you're expanding it, just as we do with the prison industrial complex. And given that policing is a fundamentally flawed and fundamentally racist practice in this country, that's something that, that we don't want to advocate for. And I think another one, and this ties in with the surveillance aspect of your question, is is technology involved in this reform? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think like that's so tricky because it's so easy and so appealing for us to reach for tech fixes. You know, they sound so good. And they sound so good partially because they're often not real. <laughs> so these are some of the questions that we need to be asking ourselves. But I think that there are reforms, there are incremental steps that we should be supporting, you know? And that's something in Truthout's book that just came out, Who Do You Serve, Who Do You Protect, that we really emphasize that we do not wanna say it's abolish police or nothing, you know, because that's not actually gonna get us anywhere in pragmatic terms. Mm -hmm. We want to advocate for, again, that simultaneous perspective of like, okay, we have this long-term vision of moving beyond police as we know them. And then at the same time, we're advocating for incremental steps toward less policing and more accountability. So for example, one of the, one of the incremental steps that I love is proposals that advocate for reparations for survivors of police violence. In Chicago, we passed an amazing ordinance, a reparations ordinance for survival, survivors of police torture under police commander John Burge mm -hmm. over the course of a decade in Chicago. It was mm -hmm. just um, a number of black men who mm -hmm. were tortured by the Chicago police and it was just kept under wraps. Many of them were sent to prison for decades mm -hmm. after they'd been tortured. And so this very wide ranging reparations package was passed after decades of activism. Really, it was transformative. It included incorporating the police torture into the educational curriculum for kids in the Chicago public schools. So kind of changing the way history is taught. That's, mm. that's a transformative step. 
It included not only providing monetary reparations for people who had suffered torture, but also establishing a center, a psychological center for specifically geared towards survivors of torture, where they would have a chance for healing in future generations, you know, would have a chance for healing and that that healing was prioritized. So that's, that's transformative. So a number of these steps also free college education for the survivors and their families. Mm. So, so these types of steps, I think, are really, like, really hopeful. Mm -hmm. I think also just anything that's defunding police, that's actually reducing police budgets, is something that we need to advocate for, not only because, you know, police are bad, but also because that funding is taking away so much money from other important things in city budgets. Mm-hmm. You know, like cities are being defunded because of the police, like services that actually serve people. You know, we have r- roads that w- don't work and medical centers that are being shut down and schools that are being shut down while police funding increases. So I think that like, we need to think of defunding the police as not only a step against policing, but also a step in favor of communities. And I think, you know, uh, another thing that we need to think about in terms of police reform is that idea of reinvestment. And I think this is more broad too, right? This is also a step in terms of prison reform And the Ella Baker Center in California calls this process truth and reinvestment. You tell the truth about what what is happening in terms of the police. You make sure that's known and that this is an issue that's like widely discussed in real terms. And then from that, you actually change the the way money and resources are spent in a way that there's an eye to long-term safety. Thinking about thinking about reform and incremental change in those terms can be really hopeful and really encouraging. And there's a project also in California, CURB, Californians United for a Responsible Budget, mm-hmm. that is geared toward decarceration and simultaneously investing in priorities that that build long-term safety and healing. So in states that have actually decreased their prison population the most, I think it's New Jersey, California, and New York, actually have seen a much larger decrease in crime than the national average. So they've simultaneously decreased prison populations and crime. And this actually shouldn't surprise us very much Mm. because right now prison is at a level where a lot of experts are saying, you know, experts in quotes, social scientists are saying that prison is criminogenic. Mm. Prison causes crime, Mm -hmm. particularly at these high levels that prison, some people say, has become a factory for crime in certain ways. So we oh, really and and, the, to... and certainly the collateral consequences that once you Absolutely. get out, um, it, that it's just a recipe for for crime. Right, right. 
and definitely the economic effects on families and communities of prison, of high rates of incarceration, drive crime. And so I think that, right, like in a certain way, decreasing prison is harm reduction for all of us. <laughs> it's, it's decreasing the harm to both people inside and also people on the outside the communities that are suffering also as a result of prison. And to bring it back to Alabama, um, can you talk a bit about that reform that was proposed there? Because we had um, Kinetic Justice on the last show, and he's also, we're going to have part two on this show. And he talked a bit about um, the reason they launched a prison strike early was because of the bill that you brought up in in your article from April um, that was proposing new replacement prisons in Alabama for the old decrepit crumbling prisons and Mm. I think this is one reform that people doing this work have to really grapple with because we people who have been doing this work long enough and see the conditions know that things are falling falling apart they're unsafe they're crumbling we should they should be living in safe conditions as long as they are there but right. we also know that as long as um if if they build it you know we will fill it and they often won't right. close the old ones um right so can you talk a little bit about that and and the bill in alabama yeah definitely so when i first started hearing about the fact that there was a plan to build new prisons in Alabama, part of me definitely understood why, because the conditions in those prisons were so sordidly bad. Yeah. And it, you know, like you said, it's like when you get to the point that the prisons are crumbling and there's really, there's a situation in place in which people are suffering in the immediate sense. You have to think about, okay, like obviously some changes need to happen, even if they're changes that you would call reform, because there's no way they're going to let everyone out tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So even as you can definitely use that type of thing as an opportunity to push for more decarceration and push to reduce the numbers of people in prison, you also can't turn it into kind of an ideological debate when people are suffering. Yeah. So for me, what really needed to be critiqued about this this bill and this plan was the fact that the plan that the governor was proposing and that almost passed would have left Alabama with 3,000 more prison beds. And within the women's prison, it also would have expanded it. So, and that was kind of this prison, Tutwiler's, that's been in the news for years, just how horrible, how horrible it's been. So a lot of activists really supported building a new women's prison without kind of noting that there would be, there would be an expansion in the number of beds. And so I think that this is the type of thing that flies under the radar and expands the prison system in spite of ourselves is kind of these reforms that are proposed in the face of a crisis, right? right. Like in the face of like 
a really serious humanitarian situation. And incidentally, you know, it becomes an opportunity for the prison business and for construction, but also for all kinds of other businesses that are associated with prison expansion to jump in and make money off this type of thing. And so part of what I wanted to do in writing about it was just ring that alarm bell and say, hey, this is an expansion. Mm -hmm. This is not just a plan that's going to cost a lot of money because that was sort of what was being really criticized and debated among lawmakers in Alabama was like, oh, it has an $800 million price tag. And it's like, yeah, that's bad. But (laughs) but the problem problem isn't just the money. It's the fact that like, this is actually a pretty substantial expansion. But then you look at like, what were the major problems at Tutwiler, the women's prison? Well, the major problem, which was getting so much attention, was sexual violence Mm. perpetrated by guards, Mm. right? So how will constructing a new prison address that? Right. Now, there definitely needs to be like infrastructure changes. Who knows? Maybe they need to tear down the prison and build a new one for other reasons, you know, as long as they're still going to have people incarcerated there. But that problem is, uh, or that solution of building a new prison is certainly not, not going for to that address, problem. Right. Yeah. address sexual violence. And I feel like sometimes it actually gets used as a distraction when this project happens in whatever form it happens because it will go through in Alabama in one form or another. It might not be the grand $800 million overhaul, but there will be prison construction of one kind or another. And I'm concerned, particularly when it comes to the women's prison, okay, so when this new prison is constructed, what are the fundamental differences (laughs) that are going to be in place? they're actually going to address the sexual violence that's been happening or you know and i think this is this is something we take into consideration as abolitionists is sexual violence just something that's part of prison is inherent to prison it's occurred everywhere prison has occurred at higher rates than it happens on the outside and so is that something that that we need to kind of confront both in terms of conditions and in terms of challenging the existence of prison itself. So it's kind of, it's a tough situation, right? That like, since we know we're not completely abolishing prisons tomorrow, we always have to be taking this dual and simultaneous yeah. stance. Yeah. Thanks for speaking with us, Maya. And find links to her books and articles in Episode 2's show notes. Kinetic Justice is one of the founders of the Free Alabama Movement. I had the pleasure to speak with him last month for several hours over two days, and we're airing a portion of this in Part 2 of his interview here. Thank you, Kinetic, for your amazing and inspiring work from behind the wall. Hello. Hey, good. Good to hear you again. How are you doing? Hey, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Got me a little fresh out this morning, so I'm feeling pretty good. 
Oh, okay. I was going to ask. I was curious about that. Are you in the cell? Today was the first day that we've been out in a month. In a month? In a month. Wow. Um, how often are you supposed to get out? Or is there any regulation well, for that? They're usually, they're usually supposed to go uh, every morning. Um, but they uh, do the staff shortages as usual. <laughs> uh, we, have, we, we have to... Uh, Right, right. So um, let me pick up where we left off, just talking a little bit more about uh, the Free Alabama movement and some of the organizing, and then um, want to talk to you a little bit about uh, some of your political um, organizing history, sort of where you learned organizing and, and political theory. Um, okay, that's fine. That works well. That works well. Okay, great. Uh, it sounds like a major impetus for the strike was this um, the new proposed Mac, uh, super prisons um, and you wanted to really get the word out that you know changes need to happen now and that you were against the building of new prisons right they, they actually they actually killed the bill uh-huh. uh, the third day the third day of the strike the bill uh, was killed wow um, and that plan was thrown out and now they're back Square one on how to deal mm-hmm. with this mass overcrowding that's right. out of prison. Yeah, well, and you know, you said of course the facilities are horrible and they they should be redone in some way as long as they exist. Um, but I think my experience here in Philly with the overcrowding just in our jail system is we have all these ancient prisons that they closed at one point when they built new ones. Um, but they never tear them down, and so when we got to the point of massive overcrowding in the new prisons, they open up these old ones again um, that are deteriorating, the ceilings falling down. So what's to stop them from filling up all these new super prisons? And you know, if 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 it just keeps piling up with more and more people, you see people back where you are again. Um, so I, exactly, and that that's what we knew. Yeah, that, you know they they <clears throat> this new unit. I'm saying as long as as long as the laws are in place that created right. this prison crisis, you can build a bigger building, and it, it's gonna have the same problem in three to five years. You got the same problem all over again. Yeah, uh, I heard um, about this uh, strike. I think um, even before it was gonna happen. I mean, I, I remember I was in Austin, Texas. Uh, about a month ago doing a screening of my movie broken on all sides and um there were some actions going on in texas and i know you have some connections to that and it was it was at that point um in the air that some some stuff was going to go on in alabama prisons as well across the board a lot of the issues that we're having in alabama are systematic um in mississippi they're systematic in georgia they're systematic in texas right they're systematic across this country for real you know, it's 2.5 million of us who are suffering up under the same oppression um, for the same reason, or up under the same pretense, uh, that we're being rehabilitated, that we're being corrected. And none of that is actually taking place. Right. In fact, the only thing that is actually taking place is that we're being warehoused and work for free or work for slave wages uh, in the state, as well as the, the federal government are reaping 
uh, the benefits of all this labor. It's not billions and billions of dollars of labor, like five, I think the prison industrial complex uh, amounts to $500 billion per year. So, you know, you're talking about uh, a system that they put $80 billion into right. and reap $500 billion out of. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that uh, this is not really and truly about crime and punishment. And the court system is not about truth and justice, for real. Uh, this is an economic system, and it is about the money. At the end of the day, it's about the bottom line on the balance sheet. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing I think about mass incarceration is... Um, there was a massive shift in the economy. Not only was there was mass incarceration, I guess, a response to the civil rights movement, as Michelle Alexander really detailed in the New Jim Crow. Um, there was also sh- such a shift in the economy with jobs evaporating from cities, um, good-paying jobs in black communities. Um, and at the same time, the civil rights movement and black power movement is going on. People are demanding their rights, um, rebelling in the cities. They were also losing their good paying jobs to the non-union South or the country or the suburbs or other countries. And, um, to me, mass incarceration also seems to be a massive jobs program in a really twisted way where they've, they've taken the urban poor and black communities in cities and warehoused them in cages in the countries with largely white guards uh, paying them to, to guard them. Um, and those same white people would have lost jobs as well in this economy, but now they're wrapped in with this criminal justice system, the prison industrial complex. Um, Can you tell me a bit about your background and how you became political? Um, like, were you an organizer before you came into prison? Um, did you oh, learn no, it? No. <laughs> okay, so let, can you talk a little bit about you and sort of your your journey to political organizing? Yeah, yeah well, um, um, actually, I was uh, wrongfully convicted when I was 20 years old. Um, I was wrongfully convicted and given a life without parole sentence to die in prison. And how old are you now, if I can ask? Oh, I'm 42 now, 42. Okay. As a matter of fact, I just had a 40, my 42nd birthday was last week, May the Oh, happy birthday. Cinco de Mayo, huh? I appreciate it, yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. But at uh, 20, a few, matter of fact, uh, a month and a half after I turned 20, um, I was locked up. Uh, so yeah, neither to say I was angry. I had a lot of anger, built up anger and frustration and so forth. And I was destined, I guess you could say, to implode 
to destroy myself because, you know, I just didn't understand yeah. uh, how this could happen. Uh, however, when I first came to prison, um, my first day in prison, uh, I, I was placed in solitary confinement as is the requirement when you're given life without parole. Now in the prison system, uh, you're automatically placed in solitary confinement for a 90-day observation. Uh, just to my, to my benefit, uh, one of the brothers who was in the segregation unit uh, was a politically conscious brother. And mm. one day uh, he asked me, did I have something to read? And I told him, no, I ain't got nothing to read but the Bible. Uh, so he sent me, uh, I will never forget, he sent me a revolutionary worker and he sent me a copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm. And those were the first two things that I had in prison to read. Um, and I read over and over and over a few times and me and him all uh, began to talk, walk and talk on our exercise walk in the morning. Um, but after the 90 days, I was shipped to home. And I'm saying it was just, I guess it was just in the cards that Alabama had one political prisoner uh, that they acknowledged in the state, uh, Richard Mapundi Lake. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of Richard Mapundi Lake, but there are plenty of books and, and documents mm-hmm. and articles and so forth on the work that he was doing in the 60s and the 70s uh, in the South. Um, but he had been framed uh, for a rape in, uh, in, in Birmingham, and he was uh, kangaroo court, yeah. I'd say, uh, into the prison system. However, um, he was my first, uh, he slept beside me. No that way. The first, the first place they sent me in home, and, they, and the bed that I slept on, I slept right beside uh, Richard McFundy Lake. Well, they, they they really fucked up, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, I can't, words can't even describe, you know what I'm saying? Because like, he was a, uh, you know, he was, it was it, I couldn't even think of a word to identify him because he had so many books. You know, he had boxes of books on his bed. All, sometimes he had all kinds of literature. And this was, you know, this was foreign to me. This is my first time in prison. I don't know where I'm at. I've never been here. I don't know nobody here. So, you know, I'm kind of disoriented trying to figure out where I'm at and what's going on and how to survive. You know, I heard so many rumors and stories about the infamous slaughterhouse of home and they didn't send me here. And I came here at Holman maybe uh, in August of 1995 is when I came to Holman, August of 1995. And um, up until maybe April or March of 1996, uh, I slept beside Mr. McFundy. And, you know, through conversation and conversation and listening to him, you know, he made me read different books, made me read this. And then we would sit down and talk about him. And a lot of my uh, political orientation, the, the vast majority of it, of my understanding of politics and the system and, and the struggle against it, comes uh, from Mr. LaFonte. Mm. Um, a few years after that, um, I, um, after I had been in prison maybe three or four years, I had, uh, had met uh, a brother named Jesse Morrison who had came off death row. And he had started the Lifers Group. Uh, and I became a part of the Lifers group with uh, Brother Jesse. And, you know, that uh, further educated me about, you know, the politics of, of the system. Uh, mm-hmm. What goes on in prison, what's really going on with the system, and what it's all about. And uh, maybe after six, seven months, uh, Brother Jesse was transferred to another institution. And I had become a little more conscious, a little more aware. 
McConaughey. And everybody in the Alabama prison system knows James McConaughey as he's a, a, well, I guess you could say a jailhouse lawyer. Right. Uh, but he's uh, inclined uh, with the law outside and inside uh, prison. He got himself out of prison uh, uh, back in the 80s. And he, but now what he did is that he ran businesses in, this, in society before he came to prison. Mm. So he came, when he came back to prison, and he created an actual uh, law program uh, where, you know what I'm saying, he had a whole curriculum. Uh, we had practical application where, you know what I'm saying, when we learned the Constitution and the amendments, we had to, that's the way that you got in the class that you had uh, to learn the Constitution and be able to recite them. Wow. Um, then we got up into the curriculum of learning the rules of criminal procedure. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we actually went through doing arrest warrants. You know, we would do mock warrants. We would hold mock hearings. Uh, we would, you know, we would do all of the actual paperwork uh, instead of just reading the book and saying, okay, that's what it said. We would actually put it into practical application. And uh, our requirement for him teaching us this was that we give it back freely. And as a result of that, we began doing the legal work of the people in the prison. Mm-hmm. Um, after we went through the first segment of the law class, we went off into journalism. Um, myself and, and Melvin Ray, the, the other co-founder of the Alabama Movement, and another brother, uh, we created a GED program, and um, we learned the basics of being able to articulate uh, the things that we had learned. Right. And so we became more proficient uh, in our legal endeavors and writing and understanding the law and so forth. And we did that uh, for probably 15 years wow. uh, before we actually uh, um, came to the format of the Freedom Bill. Uh, but over the course of that happening, um, there was something unique uh, about these brothers at home and, and getting things done. Um, and I think any any revolutionary or radical organizer will say or a good one will say you know it doesn't matter how much you read about revolution how much you read about reform you're not actually doing anything until you're actually organizing and actual organizing is messy and you learn a lot from the practice of it and um, I can say that I've learned more from organizing or talking to people like you than reading books um, to tell me about, you know, theory and practice. Uh, so, um, so it sounds like you've learned quite a lot by doing the actual work of talking to people, figuring out how to motivate them, how to connect, how to build solidarity, how to face challenges, uh, losses, and how to pick up and, and reorganize. And I look at it, I tell people, I look at it like a chessboard. And, you know what I'm saying, and, and I'm still, right now, I'm still kind of in my feelings um, about the move that the Department of Corrections made because I didn't anticipate that move on the chessboard. Um, I had all, we had already factored in that it would be too expensive for them to bring free world workers in at minimum wage to do any of the work in prison. So right. uh, we didn't see the potential of well, at first, I didn't think that uh, other people that were incarcerated would go against uh, the grain and work with the Department of Corrections and undermine something that benefits them. Um, yeah. So I guess they, I, I, I guess you have to understand what motivates people uh, in different situations. Like I said yesterday, I don't know what they promised these people or what they threatened them. Yeah. And if yeah. we don't take those lessons and apply 
surviving, then, you know, we're subject to repeat that same mistake. So we'll step down and step back and accept the victory of, of defeating the prison bill and forcing the issue to yeah. deal with uh, us more uh, fairly and, and equally. Um, but while they trying to figure out ways to get around that, uh, I'm going to be figuring out ways to put more pressure on them uh, to make them do what they're supposed to do. All right, and this, this one was built and much bigger than the one in 2014, so... I, I think the the threat is still there for for the administration. Yeah, well, I think the administration is still shook about uh, the ability to organize uh, across uh, these oh, yeah. they must be. different institutions because they are they promote a divide and conquer uh, type of mentality, an individualistic. You know, right. you getting in there, that ain't got nothing to do with you. That ain't your business. You can't prison by yourself. You know, they promote. Uh, that I ism, I ism, I ism, and the individuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to see people put that individuality to the side and come together in a unified whole, uh, completely shook them. So uh, I know you said y- you were originally planning for the strike to happen September 9th um, in conjunction with uh, anniversary of the Attica um, uprising. But you, it seemed like the the bill that was proposing new prisons being built that with that looming and also the conditions so horrible inside, you decided to launch it early. Um, what about um, the plans for September 9th? Is are you still planning um, further actions? Oh, yes, oh, yes. We're, we're, yes, we're definitely still uh, uh, pushing that agenda. Right. Great. And and it sounds like that's going to be really a national effort uh, across many states. That, that is our goal, and that's our hope, and that's our vision. That uh, over the next few months, that uh, the IWOC and uh, all other affiliations that we deal with on the outside will get as much information into these different uh, prison systems across the country. That uh, well, it's been it's been ongoing for maybe six months now. Yeah. Uh, That's our show for this month. Last month's episode featured Sherry Honkala of Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign and part one of our interview with Kinetic Justice. Check out the threads Working Principles on our website. We encourage groups and individuals in agreement with the Working Principles to start study groups around the podcast, provide feedback to the show that we can incorporate into future podcasts, and to send in movement announcements for events related to defeating mass incarceration. We'll read those at the end of each show in this announcement section. For now, check out the March for Our Lives taking place in Philadelphia July 25th, 
the Socialism Conference in Chicago July 1st through 4th, and screenings of Matt's film, Broken on All Sides, in Yellow Springs, Ohio on July 11th and Columbus, Ohio on July 12th. Find details at defeatmassincarceration.com. Please send us feedback, announcements, and suggestions either through the website or email brokenonallsides at gmail.com or write to us at 419 Johnson Street, Jenkintown, PA 19046. If you have a loved one or friend inside prison, you can print out a transcript of the show from our website to send them or contact us to send to them directly. Word degrading can't define the situation as I walk to my unit. Loathing and shameful, holes in my state shoes, snow to my ankles. They call it DCC where they do the testing, they poking and prodding, asking all of these questions like, how many times you been arrested? Are you a lesbian? How many times you been molested? It's wretched. I wonder, is this a curse or a blessing? This hurts, I'm stressing. That's my first impression. If you like this podcast, pass it on to other activists and organizers or people looking to learn more about mass incarceration. And please make a donation through the website. We do this out of our own pockets and need help continuing to do this work. You can also book me, Matt Pillisher, for a speaking engagement or presentation of my documentary, Broken on All Sides, to support this work. We do this show because... We must identify and argue against ideas that would divide or weaken our movement. That's one of our working principles. For a full list of the working principles, go to defeatmassincarceration.com. Upcoming shows will include interviews with Lynn Burke from North Carolina, Teresa Schotz from Philadelphia, Five Mualam Ak from New York City, and Mike Huggins from Philly. The struggle continues. Help! I need somebody, not just anybody. This fool, boy, ain't got no season. And this water look like Hennessy. Man, it's light brown, it's crazy on the compound. Out of ten people, what? Just one smile. Probably ain't one smile, so they wildin' out.